I am pleased to introduce today's guest, Nikki and Swami, co-founders of Swami Select, located in Mendocino's Bell Springs, Appalachian, an area known for producing some of the world's finest cannabis. Today, we're talking about cannabis, cultivation, and spirituality. To set the stage, here's a quick intro to today's conversation. Nikki was born in the right place at the right time to be a flower child in San Francisco in the 1950s. After years of being the ultimate city girl, working at the San Francisco Chronicle and Crone TV, Nikki dropped out and traveled the world, living primarily in India. After years, she returned to San Francisco, soon making her way north to the hills of Mendocino County. Now, as co-founder of Swami Select, she fosters the growth of sustainable, lab-tested craft cannabis that's cultivated in living soil using regenerative organic methods. Called the Swami of Pot by Rolling Stone magazine, Swami Chaitanya is a radical classical. Having started life as an East Coast academic, now in his early 70s, he's grown over the years into a West Coast cannabis holy man. As self-described original hippie, Swami moved to San Francisco in 1967. From there, he traveled the world, living in South America, Europe, and India for many years, before settling in Northern California's Mendocino County, the heart of the Emerald Triangle. Together, they've created Swami Select and have become the leading force in the cannabis industry, educating and advocating for the betterment of the plant and those who consume it. Let's welcome Nikki and Swami to the Branding Bud Podcast. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for joining us, Nikki and Swami. Oh, thanks for having thanks us, David. Thanks for inviting us, yeah. Great to be here with you. Would you mind sharing about how you guys came together and, and how the farm came to be? Why in Mendocino? Uh, sure, certainly. We um, Swami and I first met way back in 1969 in San Francisco, and I was a young flower child living in the city. I mean, I grew up there, so I would have to go home at night. I wasn't a runaway, but I was in the city. And um, I met Swami and a bunch of his friends. They were all artists living in the North Beach part of San Francisco, hippie artists. And they were the coolest thing I'd ever known coming from Convent of the Sacred Heart Catholic Girl School. And I started hanging out with them and just kind of the whole gang. And then it was... Um, Later, in about 1980, that Swami and I reconnected and had the electricity and the light bulb go off, and we fell in love and got together as a couple, and we've had quite interesting incarnations in our relationship since then. Um, I worked for many years at the San Francisco Chronicle and then at KRON-TV, and Swami was an artist in San Francisco, a hippie artist, and also did some odd jobs and stuff. And we eventually dropped out and moved to India for several years and lived in other places in Asia, but primarily India. And it was um, during a certain point when we came back in the early 90s, I also worked for a show called Bay Area Backroads that was on KRON, the NBC's chase station in San Francisco. And I worked on this show, Bay Area Backroads, that was all about going out to unusual places all around primarily Northern California. And at the, during that time, we started really looking for where would we want to get a, a summer place thinking, you know, we would be staying in the city. Where would we want a place in the country? And we'd check it out and we'd meet different real estate agents and um, just different areas kind of always thinking, well, you know, if it's basically got a health food store, it's going to be a pretty cool place. And what are the people like here? You know, we didn't really fit into a bunch of redneck areas. So we just kept doing our searching. And then we took off. We're in India, came back um, in uh, 96. I came back ahead of time from India from Swami. And at that point, I was um, 
one of the things I was doing was putting on a psychedelic trance raves in the Bay Area primarily, uh, which is something that originally actually started in South India in the small state of Goa. So I was kind of joining some groups of people in the San Francisco area that were sort of doing it, but no one was putting on the 24-hour-plus all-night, overnight, camp-out, weekend sort of psychedelic trance parties. And I wanted to do that. So through a friend of mine named Michael Gosney, I met his friend Tim Blake, who had just gotten a piece of property up here in Mendocino County outside the town of Laytonville. And I came up, checked it out, met Tim, and said, okay, we can do this. I mean, it took a lot of work to clean the property up, but let's try to do it. And so we started putting on parties there. And Tim Blake, as you may know, ended up becoming the guy who was the founder of the Emerald Cup. And um, so we became very good friends. And I started not only putting on the parties, but things developed. And I started trimming for Tim and working in his gardens and uh, doing all kinds of stuff. We actually ended up sharing a house together and putting on wild parties all the time together. And this kind of was our real intro for me to living in Mendocino and meeting a lot of the cannabis culture up here. Now, I'd been, you know, selling weed since I was, since 1969, which is the same year I smoked my first joint, basically. I started selling it right away so I could score my own weed. And so it was not something new to me to be in the cannabis business. I'd been a dealer for years in the city as a side gig. And so, but now I got to experience actually growing the plant and what that was like. So when Swami moved back from India himself later on in um, about the 2003 is when we came and started really seriously looking again for property here. And a real estate agent we knew turned us onto this magical piece of land, a very special piece of land up here in these hills. Most things are built on the side of a hill. Most gardens are terraced down the side of the hillside. And we have this wonderful flat piece of valley in up in the mountains, but a private little valley. So our garden is on some beautiful flat land, which is a real bonus. And we fell in love with this piece of land. And that's how we ended up in Mendocino County. We sold our place in San Francisco to be able to buy this ranch and built it out and built the houses on it and everything else. And I think it's 18 years later now. We we still love it, and the gardens are flourishing, and really glad we made that decision. Swami, is there more to your property than just cannabis cultivation? Is there a religious or spiritual component to the property? Well, that was uh, kind of what our teacher back in India uh, told us when uh, I was thinking I would be staying in India and living up in the mountains and, you know, sort of being, I don't know, semi-hermit or something like that. And when our teacher uh, we were uh, meeting with in South India, our little temple town uh, that we always went to, he, he said uh, that I really needed to go back and help Nikki because Nikki said she wanted to make a temple. And so we felt back here that there was this was a sanctuary. Uh, this place was, uh, once we saw the place and we saw how magic it was, and it's up in the mountains in the middle of, uh, you know, wilderness, but we have a lot of flat open area as well. And uh, there are various places on the land where the certain kind of spiritual energies just seems to sort of bubble out of the, of the earth itself. And we're pretty certain that the original people here, the Native Americans, were, were living here as well, and they they used it for their big parties. So we found that uh, there are very special places, and we brought these 
the large stone statues from India to uh, I, you know, show those places as a spiritual uh, vortex, so to speak. So I have a big statue of, of Ganesh, the elephant-headed god, at the gateway. We have Shivnataraj, the dancing Shiva, uh, who also uh, is a, uh, a consumer of cannabis in the form of bong or, you know, cannabis smoothie. And so various places around have these statues that, you know, indicate that there's something extra special happening here. And we also have, you know, meditation retreats from time to time and uh, teach classes and uh, like that. And, and people come up here just to get re-energized. And they came up and maybe we won't even see them for three or four days because they're camping in a little spot on the other side of the property. And we only let this for friends and people we know. It's not a public facility in any way, uh, but it's really kind of a special place. Uh, and, yeah, like I say, it's much more than growing cannabis, although it tur- we didn't come up here to grow cannabis. We came up here to create the sanctuary. And then it just turned out that, well, first of all, some friends of ours who we knew for 30 years were living up here, and they just gave us a whole bunch of uh, seedling starts about two feet high, and that was our first crop. And it just seemed like, well, okay, that'll kind of pay the rent. Uh, or not the rent, it'll pay, pay the mortgage, so to speak. And so that's kind of why we developed that. But then we really were, you know, into cannabis as a sacred thing to begin with, and it just seemed like a, it wasn't taking away from the property. It was actually adding to the property. And so as a result, we've also gotten into regenerative agriculture about restoring the fertility of the land and living in harmony with our environment and, you know, being stewards of the land. So it's way more than cannabis growing. It's about a whole way of living uh, close to nature and, and keeping, you know, our, our harmonic relationship with all the elements of nature, the insects, the birds, the, the animals, and, and the plants and the trees. You know, actually, David, if I can interject one thing there is um, when Swami, about the natives that lived here, I, I don't know if I would call it parties that they had here. They had, um, they would come here to gather their acorns in the autumn because there's a lot of really beautiful black oak trees that circle our meadow that would have had to have been tended by them over hundreds, maybe thousands of years, actually, um, to create them in this pattern so that there's the open space surrounded by these oak trees that um, make these beautiful acorns. So they would have come up here to gather the acorns and probably it would have been like a a gathering when also the young boys and the young girls would have had a chance to meet and make connections there, um, just sort of like any sort of tribal gathering. But so that's not a party. It's well, it's not exactly a party. I, I think it would be more. It's, it's a, a sacred celebration. A sacred, yeah. It would, and they would probably do that annually at least. Maybe they would meet here in the spring as well. well but you I know? was reading that also the native peoples up in this area generally there are many, many, many small tribes. They had a, a summer festival which they called either the White Deer Festival or the Heal the Earth Festival. And so all the different peoples, the clans would come together and, you know, and Sneaky said, maybe they'd, you know, meet some girls, whatever. But also sometimes, you know, tribal conflicts would be worked out and people who had grudges against a neighbor, that could be worked out also. So it was really a multi-purpose event of everybody coming together and sort of resolving their problems and differences and carrying on and figure out what they needed to go forward to prosper. And what did they call it? Heal the earth? Heal the earth ceremony and the white deer ceremony. Yeah, yeah. And there were many of them up in these hills. Well, that sounds almost like a party. Um, (laughs) 
<laughs> I'm sure they had their own ah, words That's true. Nikki, would you tell us a little bit about the farm and outdoor grown, living soil, regenerative cultivation? Can you tell us about the importance of the location or, or other important aspects? Well, you know, we are literally in the heart of the Emerald Triangle. If you look at the map, we're in northern Mendocino County, which is very close to Southern Humboldt and very close to Western Trinity, Southwestern Trinity County. So it really, really, we are in the middle of the Emerald Triangle. And that puts us about, about 30 miles from the coast. So we get incredibly fresh air that comes in off the ocean and we have beautiful clear water, except on a fire day, but today's a nice day. Um, we have beautiful fresh water that comes from our spring. Um, that makes just, I mean, this is really some of the cleanest air and water well, in the country. But we don't use the water for growing. We, the no, water no. for the growing of cannabis crop comes from our pond, right. which is full of nutrients from the fish and so on. But the spring water is what we drink, actually. It's perfectly clear and beautiful right from the tap. And it's just a perfect altitude also. Our ranch is at, the heart of our ranch is at 2,600 feet. And that's a really ideal height to be growing cannabis. Um, you don't want to be a whole lot lower than that. I mean, you can certainly grow it down. You can grow it in the Central Valley. You can grow it in Salinas, you know, but it's never going to be the same as this, you know, the altitude is very important in growing better quality cannabis. So we feel very blessed that way. And we have really good soil. And of course, we've added to that soil and grown that soil. And I'll let Swami talk about that a little more later. But um, through, you know, using regenerative methods that actually feeds the soil to only make it better and better. So it's really just a, a perfect place for growing cannabis as far as the altitude and the temperatures well, the and about cold is- nights. We get the nice cold nights. Mm-hmm. But there's another thing about it, too, hot days and cold nights. But there's also a culture up here, you know, 60, 70, 80 years of people, you know, coming into the wilderness, partly to get away from law enforcement, of course, and privacy. But, you know, up here, there's an, you know, there was this underground group and they all kind of protected each other and they shared starts, uh, you know, cannabis starts and seeds and also growing tips and so on. And so together, you know, there was kind of a group uh, knowledge base that was shared of how to grow cannabis, right? Because in the old days, you really had to, you know, hide it in the woods, you know, under the oak trees or under the manzanita bushes or something like that. So it wasn't really visible from the air. And you had to hide your your pathways and so on. So it was really kind of a total underground culture. And that there was a certain sort of, uh, I don't know, mystique about that. And, and everybody looked after one another and, and took care of one another in a very, very wonderful way. Yeah. Now there's really sort of two tribes of cannabis growers up in these hills. There's the ones that are legal and the ones that are what we call now the traditional market instead of the black market. Mm-hmm. And and it's interesting. I mean, we've kind of split in a way. Um, we're still friends, of course, but there is a division. Uh, but the, amongst the legal ones, which we're in that group, um, there still is a sharing. Now it's, you know, it's also not only the sharing of, you know, I've got root aphids. What do I do with it? Or questions like that about actual growing. But we have to share a lot of knowledge with each other about how to fill out these permit forms and applications and everything else we have to do to get legal. It's not an easy process. And it really takes the whole community to help each other out to understand all of this, those little things we got to do just right. And then the other side of it is we, you know, I talked about the sanctuary for people and meditation so on. But it's really also a sanctuary for wildlife, right? You know, we made this whole list just for our California Environmental Quality Report. But, you know, we have bears and mountain lions and bobcats and 
gray foxes and uh, possums and uh, raccoons and skunks and squirrels and moles and uh, all kinds of stuff. And we have all kinds of fish and birds and, you know, un unbelievable lizards. And just the other day I saw this beautiful rattlesnake. I mean, everything's alive here. And, you know, deer across the meadow, wild turkeys. Uh, so, you know, we're just really, you know, we're a tiny corner of our 190-acre plot, but we're also surrounded by a 1,400-acre and a, uh, how much is that, 190,000 uh, 90, acres, the neighboring? 14,000? Uh, 14, 14,000 acres, right. <laughs> 90,000? No, no, the one is 1,400 acres we drive through, and the next one is 14,000 acres. So we're the tiny little one, 190 acres in the valley. So, but yeah, it's real beautiful, beautiful wilderness up here. And, you know, it's, it's never been farmed. And that's another thing about how clean the air is, the clean the water is and so on. So it's really just an amazing, magical place to grow cannabis <laughs> and to live. Swami, you produce your own strains, but also partner and cultivate with many of the Triangle's best geneticists. Would you, would you tell us what your most recent strains are or what your favorite one is? Uh, well, actually, uh, well, we have, uh, we're just about sold out, pretty close to sold out of our uh, 19, uh, 2020 harvest. And we're now watching uh, the final uh, maturation of the 2021 harvest. So what's coming is a whole bunch of stuff from uh, uh, Humboldt Seed Company. Uh, we have uh, Magic Melon from them and Secret Samadhi uh, from them. And then we have some other uh, small-time uh, breeders uh, Sour Afghani is from uh, Daniel Morford, and then uh, Raspberry Lemonade is from our friends Carla and Jacob up in Trinity County. And in the past, we've had seeds also from uh, Freeborn Selections, our dear friend Jackson, who goes by the name Mean Gene. And we've had uh, Lime Pop Kush and Lemongrass and uh, uh, Sky Cuddler from him. Uh, so uh, this year we're also growing one called Don Carlos. Who's that from? Yeah, that's from Humboldt Seed along yeah. with the Raspberry Parfaits. Raspberry Parfaits and, and Strawberry Cheesecake. Sure, yeah. So we're having a lot <laughs> of sort of fruity ones this year. Uh, and it's always kind of a fun thing to try and figure out which ones we're, we're going to uh, be growing for the next year. Um, we had one called Lime Pop Kush that's really potent, but it had a very small yield from last year. So anyway, it's always new. We do have some strains, or I like to say cultivars, that we've created over the years. We had Swami Select, uh, for, no, Swami Sativa for so long time, and uh, Ganjama, we had another one. Ooh, uh, and we have a very special one called Secret Samadhi. Secret Samadhi is, uh, well, that's not, we didn't really develop that seed, but uh, uh, Nat Pennington from Humboldt Seed Company kind of developed it specially for us. So we're keeping that one going. But, yeah, we like to be just part of the whole environment up here. So what's your favorite? My favorite. Well, um, <laughs> thank you, Nick. It depends on the time. <laughs> but I like Magic Melon, uh, which is we're growing that for the second year. And also uh, Secret Samadhi is good. But I don't know. I've really gotten into that uh, Lime Pop Kush. It's really, oh, really? Yeah, okay, it's funny. So, uh, But, like, it really depends on what time of day because – Sitting on my where I sit on the couch, I have like ten jars next to me with ten different cultivars. So I can like smoke just about anything I want. That and it's really kind of like a, an intuitive guess about what I'm going to do. Start off in the morning with sativas and work your way through to to indicas. I'm not that logical, rational. Actually, I'm very intuitive. <laughs> <laughs> Nikki's laughing over here. I've been really, really. Uh, you know, moderate because I don't usually smoke. I like, I haven't even smoked one yet today and it's almost two o'clock. So I, I don't know. I have to do all the correspondence and kind of 
paperwork for the county or, or replying to people on internet and so on. So I really don't wake and bake or smoke much in the morning. Now, probably as soon as we get off this podcast, I'm going to fire up and so on. And But then I do smoke, you know, at four to five joints a day, but, but they're actually the super, super swami joints, you know, real bombers, you know, fatties, we call them. Uh, and a swami joint usually has two and a half grams, sometimes up to three, depending on the cultivar. So, uh, yeah, they're not for lightweights. And uh, since Nikki stopped smoking joints. Yeah, he I smokes had- those all alone, David. It's pretty impressive. Because um, <laughs> I, I, I had to stop after 50 years of smoking weed uh, about two years ago because of moderate COPD. So I now mostly do edibles and occasionally pull out my volcano to smoke something. But Swami, meanwhile, has to make up for it and yeah, smoke I, it all alone. He yeah, doesn't have me to help him anymore. That and now I had to up my tolerance to do that. But, you know, it's just... <laughs> I, I think medical professions should examine me and see because uh, I don't. I haven't lost my memory. That's for sure. I can remember stuff really well. I might not remember what what Nikki told me t- ten minutes ago. That's for sure. She'll remind me. But uh, <laughs> from your perspective, how does the plant spirituality and and business, you know, come together? Well, I mean, I think we probably are about. I, I don't. I can't put my finger on any other brands out there right now that have a spiritual side to them. And, and it's not, it's nothing phony from us. This is who we are. We did live in India. Swami is a real Swami. He's gone through all the initiations and done all of that. Um, I've been a creator of sacred space. That's basically why I put on those raves so that I could build altars and turn people on to um, all the traditions, all the sacred traditions, um, not just Hinduism, for example, but everything. And as far as combining that with business, well, Sacred commerce is uh, something a friend of ours actually started that kind of theory. And it makes a lot of sense. It means that you're, you're doing, you know, you're, you're enveloping right livelihood into all of your business practices so that when we do something, we do it honestly, we do it with compassion. Um, you know, we really try to, you know, it's a little harder sometimes when you're dealing with board of supervisors or something to always have unconditional love, but we try our hardest. Um, and it just, it does carry through. I believe everything does. I mean, it carries through to the fact that from the time we plant our seeds, we start our seeds and Swami puts a drop of Ganges water on that, on the water, on the seed. And we say mantras over them all through the entire process. We have Ganjama, who's the goddess of cannabis here. Um, who presides over the garden and over the entire process that we go through. Um, and it goes all the way through, David, to even even to the trimming. You know, if you don't have good people with, you know, happy minds and good intentions doing the trimming, I, we even feel that comes through. You know, Swami and I have been judges in the Emerald Cup since it began in 2003. We've been judging literally thousands of cultivars of cannabis over the past 18 years. And... One of the things we find sometimes is you'll just smoke something and it's just not right. You know, the vibe is not right. It might look good. It might even taste good and even get you high. But there's something about the vibe that doesn't make you feel good. And, you know, it might sound a little wonky, but I believe it really can come through the intention that people put into it as they're growing it. And so that carries into the business. That means that we can honestly sell people 
when you smoke this cannabis, it's going to make you feel good. It's going to give you, you know, a, another step towards higher consciousness. And, you know, that's what I always like to say. It is a gateway drug to higher consciousness. <laughs> and that, you know, that comes through in the business as well. So that, you know, when we're doing things, we really, you know, try to only work with people that we have um, similar ethos and intentions with so that it, it works on the same page. And um, I, I feel it really definitely does come through. I mean, it's who we are, so we can't avoid it. It's who we are and it's in everything that we do, really. But it also helps us kind of target our audience in a certain way, that a certain kind of people are really going to want to smoke our flower because of that, you know, that sacred intent that we put on it, right? And I've had people come up to me, poets and various other people like that, and say, you know, sometimes I have a writer's block or something, and, you know, I smoke, I smoke a swami joint, and boom, you know, the, the doors open up. And so, you know, it does help us, uh, you know, kind of, you know, dial into who is going to be really uh, – and also the idea that, you know, because of that spiritual basis, as Nikki mentioned, it, it's, a, it's a, an, a guarantee of purity. You know, both in terms of all the ingredients because of the regenerative farming aspect, but also because of, you know, what we're doing it for is to create this plant, which which is an expression of the plant itself and an expression of where it grows. Right. And so, you know, contrary to something that's grown in a factory uh, with really kind of harsh conditions uh, for the for the workers in the factory, here are people working uh, our team is out in the out in the meadow, and the sun is shining. And right now, I see ten birds flying around. And you know, at night, the moon comes up, and you can see the Milky Way. And and all of that has something that you know is is charging up the flowers in a way that just can't happen indoors. And also, the people who are working are also in a much better mood because they're actually out in nature rather than you know closed in a building. So all of those things add up, and that help us. Uh, the, the, the sacredness of it helps define uh, who the market is in a certain way. Mm-hmm. So many people in the cannabis industry or many consumers first look at the THC levels. They often write off anything that's outdoor grown. How do you guys feel about that? Unique not only in that you both are the brand and you live the brand, you're really coming at it a different way than most of the mass market grow facilities that are, are really growing as fast as they can, not as best as they can. Well, we're really coming at it the only way we know how, I yeah, guess, yeah. you know, because we're who we are. Well, and- <laughs> but, yeah, but the thing is that that number of THC is only one ingredient out of a possible more than 500 compounds that a cannabis plant can have, right? And there's 100 cannabinoids, there's who knows 50 or 60 uh, terpenes that uh, can present in cannabis. And uh, just as a note, the winner of the Emerald Cup from all the years we've been testing has never had the highest THC. And that's partly because the way we judge for the cup and the way that a real cannabis connoisseur will judge is you, you, you first of all assess the look, right? Is it a good trim? Is it good color? Uh, are their trichomes full? Or are they knocked off? And then you, then you assess the, the aroma or the fragrance and how does that stimulate certain memory associations or trigger certain responses in you? You know, is it cardamom? Uh, is it mothballs? And all of those things then are, are value parts of the cannabis because the, uh, the, 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 the terpenes and the flavonoids have a, uh, not only just uh, medical effects, but through aromatherapy, they have mood-changing effects, right? So, you know, smelling something really lemony or really piney can just sort of 
elevate your mood just from the smell, right? And so when we also then, uh, you know, we whenever we roll a joint, we take a dry hit on what it flavors, and then we light it up, and we also, again, assess the flavor of the smoke. So all those are qualities that are about, you know, the enjoyment of the smoking experience, which also helps you really pay attention and dial in about what the actual psych- psychedelic experience is. And so those are qualities that are way beyond just the THC number. And, you know, focusing on one thing is uh, is kind of being uh, not really opening yourself up to the totality of what cannabis can bring you. Not that you're wrong, but just sort of open up and, you know, let something else happen. And a lot of bud tenders are able to give that, but many people don't want to hear. They just they just want bang for their buck. And so the bud tender says, okay, that's what you want. I'll sell it to you. But then they might say, well, maybe you want to try this other one because I tried it. And really, you know, and the thing is, it's not the THC that's only getting you high. And uh, Ethan Russo coined the term, I believe, the uh, entourage effect. And I like to change that and make it a little bigger with 500 ingredients. I like to call it the symphonic effect of everything in the cannabis that actually is affecting your state of mind and your state of physical body as a result uh, of smoking this. I've seen over the course of time, maybe over the last two years, the entourage effect was the the initial concept. And now I hear you say the symphonic effect. And I appreciate the um, this widening of, hey, it's not just THC. There's so many other things happening. And further, you said something earlier too, which I think just hit the nail on the head, which is you spoke about aromatherapy. And often when talk to people about the difference between indica and sativa, I think more people need to know that it's not about the THC alone. There's so many other components and, and factors to really figuring out what's right for you, what cultivar is best for you. Well, one thing you mentioned, indica sativa, and uh, we talk about that a lot. And the fact is that uh, uh, what we found is that whether a plant Indica means that usually in our talk that it's a rounded, bushy, big leaf plant. And sativa means it's kind of spare and narrow leaves and really tall and so on. And uh, But the fact of the matter is that the shape and size of the plant really doesn't give you much of a prediction or indication of what its effects or whether it's got high THC or whether what terpenes it has. And we are friends at SC Labs down in Santa Cruz, and they've been doing the testing for the whole, uh, for, you know, 10 years or so for the Emerald Cup. They've tested over 200,000 cannabis samples. And in their testing, they had a, an analysis done of all their testing over the years. And what they found is that 40% of, of the things they tested had myrcene as the dominant terpene. And it didn't matter if it was a hybrid of this, a hybrid of that, an indica or a sativa. It really didn't give you any indication what was going to be the dominant terpene. The second most dominant one is beta-caryophylline. And then there are th- uh, four others that also can be dominant. But like I say, between indica, I mean, between myrcene and, and beta-caryophylline, that's pretty close to 60% of all plants having those things. And I just read uh, Leafly's list of the 100 best strains, as they call them, cultivars. And you looked at and uh, it worked out. 40% of them had myrcene dominant. And some were relaxing and some were energizing and some were in between. And the same way, about 20% of them had the beta-caryophylline. And then terpenaline showed up, which is a pretty common one. Pinene, like you said, limonene. And then the outlier is one called osamine. 
And asamine is that terpene that doesn't take very much. And all of a sudden, a little bit of it will make the whole thing taste like a pineapple or a tropical fruit, uh, so on and so forth. So, And in fact, it's not even so much what is the dominant terpene. It's more about the dominant plus the secondary and the tertiary. And once again, we're back to a symphony here. And so you mentioned linalool, and that's a very important one when it has lavender. A lot of people, you know, put a little drop of lavender oil uh, on their pillow or something to help them go to sleep. So now if you really want a nice, relaxing, sleepy time thing, uh, and you'll come and you say, I want indica. Well, th- you're telling the person you don't want a bushy plant. You actually want to relax. So rather than, you know, I have to s- stop myself from correcting them about indica sativa and say, okay, you really want to relax. So maybe you want something that's got this linalool and some myrcene and probably maybe even a lemonade, and that's going to help you chill out. And so why don't you try this cultivar here? And I'm not going to tell you what it is, indica sativa or not, uh, because in fact, at this point, there's nothing that's a pure indica or sativa available probably anywhere in the United States. They are all hybrids, and they've been hybrids for the last 20, 30 years. So much more important for the consumer is to find out what is the combination of terpenes, uh, the various first and second and third terpenes. So, and you determine that by the smell. And then the second thing is, what is the ratio of THC to CBD? And once again, uh, the fullness of the plant, the whole symphony of things, is actually more important in terms of your high than the THC. And my feeling is that the terpene content and the, the ratios of the several terpenes gives you more about dialing in and fine-tuning what the real effect of the cannabis is. The THC gets you high. But where do you go when you're high? And that's what the terpenes kind of uh, will guide you in that direction, according to the smell. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, we've actually had plants grow before that for all the world look 100% what you would call sativa. And and because they've got the very thin leaf, they're very tall and thin plants. And I remember one year we had one, the woman, we got the seeds as many years ago. She promised us these are 100% sativa and I'd smoke it and I'd fall asleep. So we got it tested and it absolutely came in with terpenes that were all about getting relaxed and cozy and wanting to take a nap. So there goes that theory. You know, it's like uh, we have to be careful in trying to correct people and teach them things they don't really want to hear, but just encourage them to be experimental and try something new, basically. Do you think they should be leading with terpenes then in terms of presenting their brands and, and then people better understand how terpenes affect them and then they could select whatever it is they want? Yeah, I think that's really hopefully that is the future. It's going to be a wonderful day. When somebody goes into a store and instead of saying, I just want your strongest THC sativa, you know, just give me that for the best price. But they're going to go in and they're going to say, you know, I want something that smells a little bit like fruit and and a pine and has that sort of effect on me. And that's going to be a whole different time. When we can get to that, then people will really be able to narrow it down to what they're going to want and what they're going to get and do it right. People think about wine that way now, you know, where they want a little pepper flavor or they want a little, I I remember having some wine in Italy where they spoke about, you know, tasting the ashes of uh, Mount Vesuvius uh, in the wine. (laughs) (laughs) That's important. Actually, in the old days, when we first started judging for the Emerald Cup, uh, we would get these reviews of the wine harvest. 
and we would read what the wine connoisseurs were writing about, you know, how it had blackberry and sort of a gunmetal taste and maybe this sort of thing aftertaste and nose and various things like that. And we realized that those exact same way of approaching and describing uh, wine was also applicable to cannabis. And so that's when we really turned into, you know, trying to describe what we have. See, the sense of smell, the olfactory sense, is one that's laden with memories of past events in your life. And just like a music uh, sound or song can trigger a, a beautiful memory, likewise, uh, a smell can, can take you to a certain place. And, uh, you know, it's a whole sort of way of altering your consciousness and taking you to something that makes you feel good. You know, the simplest example I can give you is if you say you're in a, in a, in a room and you, and you peel an orange, right? Well, as you peel that orange, the whole room gets that terpene. Right. And what's that? That's a little mercine and terpenaline and maybe a lot of limonene, I guess. I don't know. But see, all those things occur in nature. In nature, there are over 42,000 different terpenes. So all plants and everything else are putting out these volatile organic compounds called terpenes. Right. And they put them out for a certain reason. And the reason is twofold. One, to defend against things that might attack them, maybe viruses or fungi or certain bugs that will be repelled by that smell. And the other thing is for attracting certain elements that come. So, you know, maybe uh, bees and birds actually are going to help pollinate because they go to a male plant and they get dust on their wings and they come over. So it's a kind of twofold purpose that the plant is producing these things. And so we can use them the same way that the uh, antiviral, antifungal effects will help us as well and combined with those uh, similar powers of THC and CBD really add to, again, once to the symphony, right? And then those things that attract us also, they're going to be, you know, make you, you know, like we have in humans, we have our pheromones and so on. What, what pulls someone close? And that, you know, so what I do is when I want to smoke, I basically open the jar and smell it. And which smell is that triggering in me right now? That's the one I'm going to smoke. And so the terpenes really are the, the key to dialing in the fine tuning of, of what where you're going to go with, with the THC high. So, Nikki, you said something earlier about you just feel a certain vibe if it's right or, or, or wrong. Yeah, I mean, it may sound really new agey, but I mean, it's an incredibly psychic plant. It really, really picks up on what is around it. I have no question about that. And And you really... It truly does come through. There's no question. Like when we're judging for the Emerald Cup and we have starting off 400 and something samples before us in mason jars, which is phenomenal. Um, usually what the judges will do is first go through and basically if something has no smell at all, we're just not going to bother. We've got enough to take care of. It doesn't have a chance to be a contender. So now we maybe get it down to 275. And then we take those home. And then, but when we're sitting together as judges, it's always interesting when we've got, you know, 12 or 13 judges sitting around a table, we're all smoking these joints. And by the end of the night, you've got these ashtrays full of joints and some of roaches and some of them are tiny and some of them are basically the whole thing. And that's how you can tell which is the best one, the one that's tiny. And it's really true, just like your friend said, you know, it's just you just don't bother. If it if it immediately sells you, no, this is not the right vibe, you just don't bother. Now, of course, a customer in a store does not have that luxury to just sit there and try them all first. They have to kind of go on the advice of the bud tender. Yeah. 
And that's why it is so important through branding and marketing. And the bud tender is the final person that's actually going to be able to give that approval or let you know what's to expect. It's so important that they really have the facts. They have the knowledge of the farm. It's great when they know the farm. It's wonderful when we get bud tenders come up to the farm from the stores that really fills them in on what's going on up here. And our in-store in-store appearances are also very important just to really give people a vibe of who this is that's growing your weed, you know, and is it pure? Is it grown in a greenhouse along with literally thousands of other plants and not getting much attention? Or is it grown outdoor where we're growing here under full sun and each plant gets talked to every single day? You know, that makes a difference. You know, it makes a difference in your cannabis. It makes a difference in your vegetables. It makes a difference in your flowers. They're all going to look better when they get that personal attention every day that's, you know, comes with love and care. Yeah. And it's about the inputs, both psychological, like Nikki's talking about, but also the physical inputs. And so uh, we mentioned regenerative farming before, uh, but uh, that is a, a situation where what you're doing is actually improving the fertility of the soil. And one of the principles is to source as much as you can, either from your own farm or what we call hyper-locally. So, for example, the neighbor up the hill, like half a mile away, he has all these alpacas. So we use fresh and well, we use uh, you know, composted alpaca poop for our plants, right? But then we also, whenever tree branches fall down, we wood chip those, we break the leaves and so on. And then we have our own compost pile and our wood, uh, our worm castings. All those we mix together. And those are just really natural ingredients that actually have all the nutrients that are in the soil that are needed for the plant if the soil's alive and has all the proper bacteria and fungi and arthropods and nematodes and all these microorganisms. You know, you remember paramecium and amoeba that you had in biology class. All those things are actually living in the soil and they're alive and they're interrelated and interdependent. We call that the soil food web. And one of the principles, uh, principles of this is what we call closed loops, right? So that's to say we have this loop where a lot of the nutrients come from our land. We take our own, you know, kitchen uh, scraps, you know, vegetables and so on. And that goes on the, on the compost or goes into the worm bin, right? And we have a wood stove and the wood we get here, some of it at any rate. And then we also, uh, the wood is also local uh, from the nearby town that we burn. And then the ashes, they go and they get put back into the garden because it's a source of potash. And we actually have biochar we make as well. And so all these things mean that what's happening is the ingredients are pure and they're natural and they're organic and they're broken down by the living soil. And so what happens is the plants start to taste like the area where they're grown. And that gets into this whole subject that we could talk about for a whole hour also is appellation uh, and uh, terroir. So that uh, the idea is that like for wine and champagne, uh, if you want to call your thing in your bottle champagne, the grapes have to be grown in the province of Champagne in France. There can only be three kinds of grapes. And all the rest of the process has to be according to strict rules and regulations, which have been established by the farmers themselves over hundreds and hundreds of years, right? So the whole idea is that the terroir, the place where they grow and the people that grow them, 
all combine to make something very, very special. And champagne from the province of Champagne does taste different and is different than from anywhere else. You have sparkling wine and uh, aspicimante, whatever they are, right? But here, likewise, in cannabis, the place where it's grown and what the people do and the nutrients they put in and the whole vibe and on it, that creates something not only an expression of the soil, but an expression of the people who grow it and the general overall geographical area of the Emerald Triangle. So there's definitely something about it, and that comes out in, in the And see, that's going to get back to branding. You know, why would, you know, what's going to happen is that, you know, say, for example, you, you, when you go to a store to buy a bottle of wine, you don't open that bottle of wine and taste it first. Now, you do in a restaurant, yes, but basically in a store, and you can't really even see the wine because it's in a colored bottle, right? So basically it ends up you buy on the basis of the brand, right? You bought that one before. You really liked it. It was really good. So you're going to go back to that same brand because of the quality. And if the brand then gives you that experience, you'll be pretty loyal to that, right? And then within the brand, maybe they'll have a Merlot and a Cabernet and, uh, you know, uh, a Zinfandel or something. And so you'll try those as well, even though your favorite might be the Merlot. And the same with cannabis. People won't be able to open the jar. They won't be able to look in the big jug and watch them pull out the buds because the jars are going to be darker to protect the flowers that are in the jars, right? That's why we have our really dark jars, which aren't black, by the way. They're, they're a kind of an indigo purple ultraviolet, which protects the flower inside. And our jars are also extra small, so the bud doesn't rattle around and knock off trichomes, and there's less oxygen in the jar itself. So all of that's part of the branding to say, you know, this is an experience you're going to want and you're going to want to repeat. And people won't need to open the jar. They just will know that, okay, it's always been good, so it's going to be good again. And we're moving slowly towards that in the cannabis world. And, you know, eventually it'll be that kind of premium product that people trust you. Well, it all has to do with trust and establishing trust. And when you have a brand like ours that actually has real people behind it, a real person's face on the jar, um, you learn to trust that person. It's funny how you just bring up trust, but that's that's really the key to go out and to, uh, to promote the brand. You know, the brand is really this look and feel of a young, fresh face. May instill other things, um, but not necessarily the, the realization that there's two people that have started your brand. You are them and, and you live up to your set of standards. And that's really important when it comes to branding, especially. And as we, if we didn't say it earlier, we certainly alluded to it. There's nobody like the two of you in the industry. There's no brand like Swami Select. You know, in my book, I have 14 cannabis brand archetypes. And honestly, um, even though I think that will grow over time, I think the one that I'm missing right now is a spiritual archetype. So I'm going to have to broaden my 14 cannabis brand archetypes to 15. But uh, we're number 15. That's right. That's right. That's, but it's true. You, you, you have something very unique, not only in the quality of your product, but in the backstory of your product, in the incarnation of your product, in the organic you know, growth of what you're doing. And I think that's why you're so very much appreciated and respected in the industry because you bring, you know, truth to the plant and you deliver that to, to people that are interested. So, um, so I thank you for that. Huh. It's our You're pleasure. Welcome. You're welcome. <laughs>
Thanks for recognizing it. Is there anything else you'd like people to know about your company, your mission, your message, your products? Any final thoughts before we close out the show? <laughs> uh, yeah, I'd like to really just share with people that if they haven't already tried sun-grown cannabis grown by a craft farmer, it doesn't even have to be us, but somebody who really cares and grows it up here in the best conditions, just try it. Because, you know, a lot of people go into the store and they figure, well, the indoor must be the best because it's got the bling. It costs more money. Every time we've turned those kinds of people onto the sun-grown cannabis that we grow, they go away saying, oh, my gosh, I didn't cough. I feel so much better. It's such a pure kind of high. The next day, there's no grogginess. There's nothing like that. So just go out and try it. That's what I say. Yeah, be experimental and try something new and you know, listen to the bud tender to say something and uh, just go beyond the simple number of, of THC or the simple category of sativa and uh, experiment, have fun and, uh, you know, you know, keep smoking and try something new. And that's part of the excitement of it. You know, if you have a particular medical condition, there are many different ways to approach it. Try something new, try a combination. And then for medical conditions, I often recommend to people kind of a three-pronged approach. Maybe you have a topical that goes on. Maybe you'll put some oil under your tongue and uh, you'll smoke too. Uh, or maybe actually you just take an edible to go to bed and then so on. And so you can, you know, there are many, many ways to use uh, cannabis these days, which back in the old hippie days, it was just, okay, you can smoke it. And that was about it. Some people would make some chocolate chip cookies and so on. But now the, the expanse of cannabis is huge and there's so many ways to use it and you can use it in, in a three-pronged approach to whatever problem. And basically, you know, even if you're just using it recreationally, I have a feeling that that's to a certain extent medical as well, because how many drugs out there in the world are all about mood elevation or changing your mood and added? And cannabis is the one that does that with the only after effects is you might get the munchies. So, you know, it's definitely something to consider as a way that, you know, this is a, this is going to make me feel better and wellness it's really what it's all about, and cannabis can be a real ally in doing that. But you want to make sure it's pure, it's organic, and it's grown with love. Very well said. Well, Nikki and Swami, a, a big thank you again, and thank you to the listening audience. I'm so thrilled that you spent some time with me, and, and I appreciate everything you guys said. So thank you again. Uh, thank you, David. It's always a pleasure to be with you. Yeah, it's a pleasure hanging out. We'll be